Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. I'm Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today we are here with multiple Newberry honor-winning author, Jenny Holm. For those of you who don't know, she has, in addition to her many, many, many other books, three Newberry honors for the 2000 book, Our Only May Amelia, 2000 book, Penny from Heaven, and 2011 book, Turtle in Paradise. Today, we're also going to be talking about new books, The Lion of Mars, which came out in January, and the graphic novelization of Turtle in Paradise, which came out June 29th. And Jenny is coming to us courtesy of Miami Book Fair. She's just one of the many authors from around the world participating in the Miami Book Fair, the nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. She's looking forward to sharing her work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and online. Please visit Miami Book Fair for more information or follow MBF at Miami Book Fair, hashtag Miami Book Fair 2021. Also, feel free to check out our archives if you want to hear interviews with some of the other amazing authors that are there, like Jason Reynolds, Meg Medina, Savannah Genishow, Jasmine Warga, and Vera Hiranandani. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. And Mm -hmm. I love the name of your podcast, obviously. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. So you have honors for three different books, of course, and they all have different young female protagonists. Are all of them from your family, like attached to your family history in some way? Yeah, they they are. So my my first novel, Our Only May, Amelia, was inspired by my dad's family. He's since passed away, but he's actually the one who got me started writing. He was a bit of an older father. He was in World War II, for context, and he grew up on a farm in southwest Washington state in a very Finnish American farming community. And so he tried to tell us about his childhood when we were kids, but we were typical kids and would go back to, you know, playing Atari when he would talk to us (laughs) and not pay attention. And it wasn't really until I was in my early 20s that I wanted to hear more about his childhood. So that ended up becoming our only May Amelia. And then, of course, I learned that, you know, if you should probably not write your first book about your dad, you should have written it about your mom (laughs) if you want want to stay out of trouble. So my next book was from uh, inspired by my mom's family. She's from an Italian-American family. And that was Penny from Heaven. And just, and just to double up on my mom's side, the book after that, which was had a tiny little clue in Penny from Heaven, was Turtle in Paradise. And that was also inspired by my mom's family, my mother's mother's side of the family. They were what are called Key West Conks. So there were a lot of people that came from the Bahamas in the 1800s and settled in Key West. And they called them conks because back in the Bahamas, they were fishermen. They used to fish for conch, which are those big, like beautiful shells you always see that have the pink inside. But there's a little chunky, uh, like clam-like creature and and it's used for soup usually. And so a lot of them emigrated to Key West and Mass. And my family emigrated from the Bahamas to Key West in the late 1800s. 
That's so amazing. Um, I know in the back of the books, you have actual photos from like historical photos and photos from your family history. And I was wondering about your research process for each of these books. And, you know, they may have been wildly different from e- for each one. But aside yeah. from family photos and aside from family remembrances, what kind of experiences did you have for those for the researching of these books? So I... <laughs> I'd always been interested in history. I've always loved history, but writing historical fiction, you just go, you fall down the rabbit hole is what we say. For all of the books, I have been very fortunate that I still had some relatives who were alive to talk about what it was like um, when they were kids. Some were, some were a bit easier than others. Like my father could speak pretty well and his sisters were all alive when I wrote Arlie May Amelia. Penny from Heavens in the 1950s, so that was much easier. And Turtle in Paradise was in the Great Depression. So I actually, my family members who were alive then, my one cousin had just died actually when I started writing this book, but a bunch of his childhood buddies were still alive, like from when he was 10 and 11, and they were in their 90s. (laughs) So I got to interview them. For all the books, I, you know, the idea usually starts with like, a tiny little kernel of an idea. And I'll do like a general research of what's going on in the era. And usually a lot of that stuff is kind of obvious, like for Turtle in Paradise, it was the Great Depression was going on. But my research is mostly more from the kids' point of view. Like I'm interested, I'm I'm less interested in the big things that adults would be curious about, like war, for instance, or geopolitical things. I really try to pretend I am the character's age 11 or 12 or 10 and and zero in on what a kid would be interested in because I remember fairly solidly what I was interested in as a kid. And usually it was food was my number one thing. You know, who was my family, what games we played, what was school like. So really like everyday life. So when I would do research, I think what was surprising to a lot of people that I would talk to them, especially when I was interviewing people in Key West about what it was like to be alive then, I think they were surprised because I would say, so what were the games you played? You know, where did your best friend live? You know, what were your clothes like? Did you help mom after school? Did you have a little job? Like all these little, little things. And I think that those little details are what add the color and realism to historical fiction. And I completely agree. And that's that's one of the reasons why I was so interested to ask you about that, because I feel like children's culture before there was, you know, there was still this idea emerging of being there being a childhood, right? Before there was like children's culture, and of course, like women's culture goes hand in hand with that, and p- some pop culture, it was considered kind of disposable or stuff that wasn't important. So I was really curious about where you find found sources for this stuff, because, you know, trying to find out actual maybe, you know, viewpoints of kids from those eras is almost impossible in some ways. I think what's great, which I have learned again and again on every book, I mean, most of the people that I've, so there are quite a lot of, there were a lot of oral histories in my father's family, like that had been um, take recorded and then printed up. So that side of my family is really big on genealogy and, and writing things down. So that was a bit easier. 
because they would they, they would kind of do this thing like as people were getting old and just about on their deathbed they would say tell me your life story but they would always they would always kind of zero back into their childhood is what they were most interested in talking about and then they would record it and write it down um but i think the greatest thing about growing old is that you don't care anymore and you just tell things like it is and so some of my interviews are very frank <laughs> about what it was like <laughs> growing up as a kid, the hardships they had. Um, they don't mince words at all. So, you know, saying, you know, we were poor as dirt, you know, we ate cardboard. Maybe they didn't eat cardboard, but they were very frank about like what everyday life was like. And they weren't worried about upsetting me when I heard heard things. Um, and I think I think that really comes across, particularly in Turtle in Paradise, where she has such a big sense of humor. And she has, to me, she has that sense of like, maybe like a lack of self-awareness. So it's like she shouldn't say or think these things. And I just find her voice so refreshing and so amazing. I do have a question for you. Yep. Is it Bungie or Bungie? Bungie, hard okay. G. <laughs> and you know, like a couple of the old conks will still say it today. You don't fall on your bungie. <laughs> Which I love that word. That is just like, mm -hmm. that's fine. Instead of behind. I mean, <laughs> the, the image of beans and, and the diaper gang hauling around the kids with blankets on. I mean... I just, yeah, I just fell in love with the the whole book. So, and then I just read Full of Beans. So I appreciated getting some of his perspective. Do you know if you're going to ever go back into that universe? Um, I think, I don't know. I mean, of course you, you, you say never say no. I had, I had said I would only do Turtle in Paradise, but who knows? I mean, it was really, I, I really loved writing Full of Beans. So Turtle in Paradise was a very hard book to write for some reason. I think it was just because, I just had a baby and I was exhausted. And so it took me a few years to do research because of all that diapering and taking care of a baby. So <laughs> I blame the children. But uh, <laughs> It's always um, a safe move. <laughs> exactly. It's all your fault. But ironically, uh, I should praise the children because for Full of Beans, my, my funniest Newberry story or one of the funniest ones is my son was a baby when I was writing the book. And then he was famously resistant to ever reading my books when he got older, which is probably healthy. He would read like my baby mouse books, but that was it. And then, I don't know, when he was in elementary school, he had to read a Newberry book and he left in classic uh, Will fashion. He left his book at school and he was upset over the weekend. And I said, well, you know, you can read a, one of mom's books. <laughs> And why don't you read Turtle in Paradise? And he kind of groaned because years before I was driving him and his buddy to summer camp every day and I put the audio tape on and my I had to pick them up from camp and they fell asleep every time I put that recording on. <laughs> so I was like, no, read it. So he read it. And then afterwards I said, so what did you think? Did you like it? And he's like, it was okay. But hey, I think you should write a book about Beans. Beans was great. He was my favorite character. You should write a book and you should call it Full of Beans. So for the very first time in my life, I listened to my child. So, <laughs> so with the three honors, they span 11 years. Can you tell us about the, the Newberry Calls or about your experiences with the ceremonies and how they might have changed over the 11 years? So 
I I have somewhat disappointing phone calls. So the first one, May Amelia was kind of in the era of pre-cell phones. And so my dad was in the hospital that weekend and I I was working in advertising. And so my, my, I had a great boss and he always said, you know, family is, the, is more important than a job. So I had taken off and was in Pennsylvania at the hospital. And that Monday morning was when they did the announcements. And in the old days, you would have to call into your phone to retrieve voicemail messages, <laughs> like a phone in the hallway or a payphone. And I, I didn't until about three in the afternoon because my dad was like in and out of procedures for like heart stuff. And I call in and there was a message from a woman named Caroline Brody, who had a, a, a thick accent saying, you know, I'm calling from the Newberry committee and May Amelia won an honor. And I was stunned. And I, I went in and told my mom and she didn't believe me. But then when my dad got back from whatever was being done to him, he was super proud. And he told like every single nurse on the ward and we got great service after that. Like the nurses answered the call button. So it was really <laughs> funny. And then for Turtle in Paradise, I likewise missed the call. There were phones then because my son was little. He was about two and we'd had this freak snow and he let our cat into the backyard who was not an outdoor cat. And so we were running around looking for the cat who I, I, I'm misremembering. I thought he let him into the backyard because he like opened the door to go touch the snow and we found the cat in the house. And so it was a voicemail. And then the final one, Turtle in Paradise was again, not exciting because I was taking, I was walking my kids to school and they called, they didn't call on the cell phone. They called on like a house phone, I want to say. So I missed the call every single time. But on the third one, I was back home in time to call them back. So I called them back like after the ceremony and I got to say hi to them when they were having lunch. So that was cool. So I guess what changed was technology of phones over the years. <laughs> <laughs> so listeners, once again, Jenny is not allowed to discuss anything that is published this year or render an opinion, but I am. So haha, I get to talk to Jenny Holm about two books that I really enjoyed this year. So the first one, the graphic novelization of Turtle in Paradise, we just recently interviewed the graphic novelist, Savannah Ganeshow, who's also really amazing. But I wanted to know is you are so used to collaborating on work and you're used to comics too, but I get the impression that you normally are writing with that intent in mind for it to be a graphic novel or a comic. Is it odd to have it, have your work, your book be turned into a graphic novel by someone else without having intended that in the first place? It was a funny situation that this came about. So Turtle, pretty much after Sunnyside Up was published, so that takes place in the 1970s, which is uh, <laughs> cough, historical fiction, painful <laughs> for those of us who grew up then. Kind of after that book came out, I started having a lot of fans. Like for some, Turtle, you just never know what will resonate with children. And Turtle is definitely my most fan favorite book, I would say, out of historical fiction. And I think kids saw the fact that you could make historical, and they don't care either, historical fiction into graphic novels. And so everybody, all these kids started requesting it. And so I approached my publisher, Random House, and they had just launched a graphics division about doing a novel, um, a graphic novelization, and they were into it. And Gina ended up um, reaching out to Savannah. So Savannah is 
I am one of her biggest fans and she did not know this. So she, her first book is called Bloom, which is just, it is beautiful. And me and my daughter, Millie, are huge Bloom fans. And so when Savannah said yes to adapting it, like we were running around and shouting in, in my house. And so I didn't really know what the you know, the procedure would be um, to doing a novelization, but basically Savannah solved all of that because she is so high energy and she's also incredibly, incredibly shockingly talented. She just dove in and she just started writing the script. And I think what was great about it, which would have been hard for me, is she had more of a, you know, like a hundred foot view of the book. And I was too close to the book in a way, like too close to some of the little details. And she could kind of pull back and see the really clear pop plot points and what needed to be in the graphic novel. And so she did like an amazing job that I think I would have had a harder time adapting my own graphic novel if I was writing the script. Yeah, I thought she did an amazing job sort of I mean, obviously with a graphic novel, you necessarily have to leave out a lot of the text, but I felt like her art did an amazing job of filling in those gaps. Did you have to jump in at any point to make any alterations or did you just let her run with it? Well, I was, I, you know, she kept me looped in the entire time. She honestly only did maybe, she did one uh, draft of the script and then made like tiny little you know, corrections. I hired, I helped very briefly on like chapter breaks. The main thing I helped with was she is like me, which means she's she falls down the rabbit hole when she's doing her art. So she wanted as much visual research as I had already done. And I, I literally have two of those huge plastic tubs of, you know, I'd spent days in the archives in Key West getting actual photo reference for when I was describing things. So I was so happy to have somebody else look at all this. <laughs> It was really funny. I'm like, what do you want? Just tell me. So um, I really pitched in more there. And and I think if the other thing, I'd spend quite a lot of time in Key West. And so I, I could tell her, you know, this is, you know, this is what the color of the sky looks like, how the color of the houses are like this pastel, tropical, muted color. And so it was really with historical details that I, I pitched in. But the rest was all her. I mean, she is amazing. When, she, when we spoke with her, she was very, very uh, grateful for your research you had already done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead to The Lion of Mars, if that's okay. Sure, go for it. So I only recently read The Lion of Mars and uh, completely devoured it in like one bite. <laughs> so it seems like all, all of your books are, if not based on then inspired by your family, like even your your comics, because you grew up with brothers who read comics and, you know, the... the 14th Goldfish, how your dad did experiments at home. But I feel like The Lion of Mars is interesting because it's in the future, but it seems like that's, it feels like you write this sort of historical semi-fiction and this feels like the, whatever the future version of that would be called. Because I know that your your husband uh, applied to be an astronaut. Is that right? He did. And he was rejected. <laughs> but it seems like you've written sort of like the same thing that you usually write, but in the future. Like the potential future? (laughs) It is. So I kind of, it it was actually inspired by the past in the sense that it was kind of, you know, it was inspired by my dad's family again. So his family, they, like my mom's family, a lot of immigrants came over in the 1800s to America. So his family 
came from farther. They came from Finland to the West Coast to Washington in the like 1880s, I want to say. And they, you know, they never returned home. So they might as well have gone to Mars because they never saw anybody from their family that they left behind. Again, they never saw their country again. They never saw the city that they grew up in again. Like they went to a completely strange new world where nobody spoke their language. And let me tell you, there were not that many Finns in the United States. It was a pretty small group of immigrants from Finland who came over and they only settled in a few places. And so it was, you know, very hard and lonely. And I'd heard, and what was interesting about hearing about the Finnish immigrants as opposed to the Italian immigrants, right? So my Italian immigrants came over in at the, you know, more in the 1910s and settled in New Jersey in like a house, right? Where there were cars and everything was normal. Well, the Finns came and they were just in the middle of the woods. And one of the famous stories in this little town where they all lived, which was called Nacelle, it's this tiny, still this tiny little town of like 200, was that, you know, one of the settlers had lived in a, in a big, uh, hollowed out tree because, Whoa. you know, before I know lovely, right. Because they hadn't, you know, it took them a while to get up the, their little house. So every single thing they had to do, they had to like figure out themselves because there were of course cities then like, you know, Seattle, but it was days away. So I figured going to another planet was going to be the same thing and that they were going to have to kind of be like, you know, my previous ancestors would have to be able to fix things. I feel like this generation, I mean, even my generation, so I was born in the 60s and grew up in the 70s. My dad was the last, well, almost the last of his generation to grow up on a working farm. So he was one of, and a, a lot of people in that generation grew up like working in and having to use their hands a lot. And so he could like fix anything because he was used to fixing every single thing on the farm. Like he could jerry rig something. But today we probably, a lot of people will just like call the handyman or I don't know, like things are a lot easier than they used to be. So I figured on people on going to Mars, you're going to have to have all those, those, those skills to like fix things. Cause you're not going to be able to call a plumber if your toilet is blocked on Mars. That's funny. Side note that my family is actually Finnish immigrants too. <laughs> Yeah. Stop. Okay. So where did your family, where did they immigrate to? Uh, New Jersey, actually. <laughs> that is really weird. So I've met the, I've met obviously the Finns in Nacelle and then there's a chunk of Finns up in Marquette, Michigan, if you go there because they worked in mines. And Ooh. so, yeah. And what's really weird is that Nacelle, Washington, where my family settled, there's a picture of what their town in Finland looks like and a picture of what Nacelle looks like. And it's kind of a little gloomy and wet with these trees. And it looks exactly the same. It's so bizarre. <laughs> I guess settle where it feels most comfortable, right? Like, you know what you know. Exactly. But I was, I thought, I mean, why, you know, next time go somewhere warm, like you <laughs> not this cold, wet place. Well, funnily enough, we did end up in Florida. <laughs> I, I, I recommend that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, I think that you're not the graphic novel, but the, the 
regular novel, Turtle in Paradise, probably redeemed Florida to Jenny. Uh, we t- we end up talking about my childhood a lot, and she thinks it's this like hellscape of alligators and and mosquitoes and scorpions. And every time we talk about it, she can't believe my stories. But when she read Turtle in Paradise, she's like, "Oh, that seems okay. <laughs> like, that's that's nice." Oh. <laughs> But yes, back to Lion of Mars. That all makes complete sense to me. And I've read somewhere else where you were comparing the virus or saying that someone had compared the virus that they contracted on Mars to COVID, which is true. But to me, like the entire situation felt very COVID-like. Like even if you left the illness aside, you know, I think in your intro paragraph, you talk about how the grown-ups had considered the trip to Mars the hardest thing they'd ever done. And it feels yep. like their entire situation there feels like just an expanded version of that. It's a little big, little bigger than the space shuttle that they would have taken there or the spaceship that they would take there. But the habitat that they're in just is so isolated and so like there's nobody to help you if you have a problem. And there's that tension of like, is something going to go wrong that we don't know how to fix or that we just won't be able to help, you know, or get help about. And I think for me too, like we had a, a bubble that expanded to our neighbors and we experienced kind of what the characters in the book experience where all of a sudden, like you've got, you've got a little bit more community. Like you have people you can talk to and eat with and, and just hang out with and it changes everything. So it, it just feels like this book, while I'm sure not written with COVID in mind, like resonates so much with a lot of people's current situation. Yeah. So it was a freaky experience, this book. So I, I, (laughs) So my novels take years to write, mostly because, um, so I make uh, graphic novels with my brother, Matt, and Sonny, and uh, Squish, and Baby Mouse. Those are on a pretty firm schedule, uh, um, public publication schedule, because art production is very involved. It really takes forever, and you can't let deadlines slip. And so the thing that falls by the wayside is usually... Uh, my novel. So Line of Mars took years and I had finished, I mean, I'd finished it by the time COVID hit and it was, it it was in the second pass of copy edit and the copy editor. So we're in COVID and I have like really funny copy editors at Random House. I've been with, I've been with that house for years since Penny from Heaven. So they've kind of like watched me grow up as a writer. I've watched them grow up as editors. And so they always, put snarky comments in like, this is funny. And I didn't see that coming, but this whole, her whole copy edit was like, I can't believe this is happening just like in real life. And (laughs) she was really upset, you know, and the illness part of, of the line of Mars was actually was inspired by real life, not by COVID. So my grandfather who he lived to be 103 he was in very good health, actually, until the last couple of years of his life, he was in an assisted living um, home in Pennsylvania. And it became like this whole issue about when I would like try to visit him. I live on the West Coast, so flying in is always like, you know, to fly in at the perfect time and not like hit snow or something. But um, the other issue that kept happening was it seemed like every single winter, around like January to March or February to April, the just like normal flu would hit. And often it was stomach flu and they would close his assisted living and not let any visitors in. So he was kind of like locked in there because obviously like flu for old people, they're super, super vulnerable. And so that really stuck in my head. If there was a virus that hit, 
all the old people would be the most vulnerable to it. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, it resonates in a lots, lots of different ways. It's funny because they did start doing that for COVID almost immediately too with the, with the nursing homes. Yep. So we must ask, do you have any experience with cooking with or eating algae? I have, <laughs> I wouldn't say a lot of experience. I have tried it. I wouldn't recommend it. That was another rabbit hole I fell down because algae is the future, a little bit of the future because uh, <laughs> spirulina, which is like a kind of algae, they're actually, they raised it on the International Space Station because it's very high in vitamins. So it's something that they could farm in space potentially. So I really try to like think of, you know, once they got to Mars, the biggest problem of getting to Mars for people who are big space people, and I was not a big sp space person before this. I was interested in it, but my husband was the big crazy space person. So it was fun learning about it. The biggest issue with going to Mars is it's going to take a long time, you know, months and months. And if something happens, it's going to take months again to get there unless we sort of, so you know, solve the time-space continuum or something. And so, of course, we'll be able to send food and supplies to Mars about like every two years. But in the meantime, they're going to have to figure out how to survive. And we can, of course, send enough MREs, like made ready to eat, like food that you would say get in the military. And you could survive on that for two years. But, you know, when I was growing up, my dad, he was in the Navy. Uh, I was a Navy brat and he was on boats a lot. And he said the most important thing, of course, to morale is food. And when I started talking to people who were in the space industry and, and at NASA, honestly, one of the things they're most obsessed about is like making food so that people, so that they, they don't lose the will to live. Cause on like a daily basis, it's what you're concerned with. And so I wanted to figure out like, what can they raise on Mars? And algae was the easiest thing that they could raise. I feel like that relates back to COVID too. One of my first impulses was to like stock up on good stuff. <laughs> well, so that was, so what was also really funny was like the toilet paper. So in the book, I'm giving it away, but it's okay. They, they use algae to make toilet paper because you can, uh, algae, one of the uses is you can make, you can make paper products and somebody actually already is making toilet paper from algae. So I have them, you know, make very crude toilet paper because you're not going to be able to run to Target. And then of course I did that because I was one of five kids growing up and I know how fast you run through toilet paper, but <laughs> I never foresaw a toilet paper shortage in the world. So that, was, <laughs> that was weird. Yeah, super weird. Um, well, yeah, I had intended to ask what you did for space research um, besides for toilet paper. So it was really interesting. So it's an incredibly welcoming world. So uh, the first thing I did was I joined the Mars Society. So it's a little known group. It's kind of like, I say it's like SCBWI from, for Mars enthusiasts. So it's, <laughs> it's really hard to describe. It's a public-private partnership of literal Mars enthusiasts going from people who just like the idea of going to Mars to pretty much like all the t a lot of the top people who are working on on trying to get to Mars from people at NASA to SpaceX to really the nuts and bolts people. And I like the nuts and bolts people the most. And those are the guys are mostly the engineers, 
without a lot of space background, quite frankly, who are trying to figure out how we are going to practically settle on Mars. So, you know, it was through this group that I met a scientist in South America who is, who's kind of already pioneered a system for growing algae in bulk. I talked to another great guy who his company really doesn't have anything to do with Mars, but they can make these sort of retrofitted habitats that would fit in lava tubes under the surface on Mars. And a couple other people I talked to, there's another um, fellow I talked to who is really interesting. So one way they're trying to figure out like what it's going to be like to live on Mars is they're going around the, you know, our world and living in really inhospitable places like Antarctica, the desert, to find out how you survive in such harsh conditions, what are the basics you need to live. And this was one of those guys who kind of gone all over the world. Um, the space community is incredibly welcoming. They are happy to share information with you. They will email you right back. And I think one of the sweetest things is that I'm still in touch with one. I actually kind of fell down my, my rabbit hole after algae on this was a medicine. Um, in the book, the main character, he is in a rover crash. And so I've always been really obsessed with making medical details right because my late father was a pediatrician and my mother's a nurse. <laughs> so <laughs> I grew up at a dinner table with a lot of medicine and doctor bags all over the house. And so I literally talked to like five, you know, pediatricians slash physicians who deal with space medicine. It's, it's a literal subspecialty. It's amazing to even know that. Because I wanted to know, like, if you hurt your, say, clavicle on Mars, how is healing going to be affected in zero gravity? Like, how is that all going to work? And the one doctor I talked to, long, you know, after the book was published, I sent him the book and, and we were chatting. He said, guess what? I'm going up to the International Space Station, like, in two years. So Whoa. I'll have to, <laughs> I know, I know. He's like the sweetest guy. I, I, and I, I said, oh, my goodness, we're going to sit around and watch you, you know, when you are... SpaceX up there. <laughs> so I think what's great about it is because it's such an it's such a young industry. We think of space, of course, as an old industry in a sense, like kind of from the you know the 60s. But really, it's still in its infancy, and there's a whole new generation of people who maybe they're not growing up as astronauts. They're growing up, you know, like as doctors, and they become interested in space, and then they kind of slide into that that field. Yeah, I well, I really like um, space movies, <laughs> and and it's interesting because I feel like there a lot of space movies are sort of formulaic in that everything is going well, and then there's a problem, and then they scurry to fix it, and then the next problem happens, and the whole movie is fixated on problem solving, right? Yep. But it's mostly technological issues, and while those are present in The Lion of Mars, I feel like the kids are doing the same thing, but with like emotional and interpersonal issues, which... Yeah if you think about it, it's going to be just as valuable in the long term in terms of making any kind of a Mars mission successful. So I think that's going to be the biggest issue. And most of the people, most of the people in the, in the real, the hardcore Mars space field, I wouldn't say in the moon field, like the moon is pretty close to earth. So people are going to be, you know, I, I, I predict what will happen is we'll colonize, you know, have a habitats and small, you know, colonies on the moon and use that as a training ground for Mars because you can kind of hop back and forth to the moon pretty quickly. Mars is far away. 
it's quite possibly will be a one-way trip because we do not know the effect of what effect gravity uh, will have on your bones when you live on Mars. Like it may deteriorate your bones to a point where you're not going to be able to return to earth, to earth gravity. And so what they are, so there is a, they are testing for interpersonal skills, how people are going to cope and live long together. And there's actually I'm pretty sure it's in Utah and it's been going on for years. Every year they have a new group of people who live in this um, sort of pseudo Mars mission in the desert to see how they survive. And what was super interesting was I talked to the woman who runs the the mission to, you know, they, they send different kinds of people in like a small team of like four or five people to live for a year. And then they simulate things happening, like something breaking, like our water broke and what they've learned is that they don't they're not going to want specialists to go to Mars. They're going to need generalists because if somebody on the mission dies, that is the only person that knows how to manage medicine, they'll all die. Or if somebody if the if the person who can do electricity, you know, dies in an accident, how will they survive? So they want they don't want somebody who knows like one thing. They want somebody who can do a little bit of everything. What's your favorite Newberry book? My favorite Newberry book is, of course, probably The High King by Lloyd Alexander. Ooh, good one. <laughs> I I had a I had a Lloyd Alexander brush brush in, brush through. I don't know. I talked to him on the phone when I was a child. <laughs> really? How did that happen? Totally crazy. Here's this will be my last story. I was a absolute psychotic Lloyd Alexander fan as a child. I was, I mean, I was a huge bookworm, which is common with all writers. I think I was a crazy Lloyd Alexander fan. And I sent him a letter or I sent a letter to the publisher in New York city. And I was in uh, elementary school and I came home from school one day and I lived in Pennsylvania. And my mom said, there's a man on the phone for you. And she was kind of like, disapproving, like, who is this grown man calling my, my daughter? And I answered the phone and it's Lloyd Alexander. And he called me because it turns out like he only lives about 45 minutes away from me. I had no idea. He lived outside of Philadelphia, but the world is so big when you're a kid, you have no context. I mean, I didn't even know he lived in Pennsylvania. So I had, when he got my letter, I had not included my return address. I had just included my phone number and he recognized the exchange 610, which was a local kid. So he just called me to get my address to write me back. Oh my <laughs> word. <laughs> I know. Such a sweetheart. And That's um, so amazing. It was phenomenal. And so many years later, after I published May Amelia, I was in a bookstore near where he lived and i I was relating this childhood story to Hannah, this bookstore owner. And she said, that's a great story. Um, you know, we need to go finish some work in my office. So I went back into her office and she picked up the phone and she said, hi, yeah, it's Hannah. Here, Lloyd, I have somebody who wants to say oh hi. My God. She, I know, <laughs> it was crazy. And so he, I have this framed letter. He wrote me a, a letter saying, I remember the little girl that I talked to in Audubon. And I'm so pleased that, you know, you, you grew up and turned out okay. Oh <laughs> so, my God. That's oh, the sweetest. Well. <laughs> it was so sweet. Yeah. I mean, he was just, what a gentleman. And, and a, I mean, to do that for a kid, so kind. Wow. That is, I think maybe our best 
what's your favorite Newbury book story we've ever gotten? <laughs> it is still, it's, it's definitely my favorite story. <laughs> <laughs> it was so lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast. Once again, we were speaking with Jenny Holm, who has written three Newberry Honor books and has two books out in 2021, The Lion of Mars and the graphic novelization of Turtle in Paradise, which was done with Savannah Ganeshow. Thanks for listening. Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Meitinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N-E-W-B-E-R-Y-T-A-R-T dot com.